Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And today's guest is someone that I know absolutely, unequivocally, without hesitation, you are going to get something major from that could possibly change the trajectory of your life. I'm setting the bar really high for you. And I want you guys to be, I want you to welcome to the show, Dr. BJ Fogg. And, uh, and BJ's been uh, someone that I and my team have admired for a long time, and I'm honored to have him on the podcast. He's a behavioral scientist at Stanford, where he directs research and innovation at the Behavioral Design Lab. Um, he also teaches his models and methods in graduate seminars. But what I love about BJ, I think the most is Though he's a PhD, he's an academic, he's a researcher, more than any of those things, he's a practitioner. And what he loves to do is train innovators on how to use his work to create solutions that actually influence behavior, whether that's in health, sustainability, finance, well-being, learning, productivity, engagement, doesn't matter. And many things you might touch today actually might have his fingerprints on them because his early work in persuasive technology has actually informed a lot of the design of products, stuff like Instagram, which was one of his students actually co-founded. Lately, he's been working on a project that I think is brilliant. It's a habit formation platform called Tiny Habits. And he uses online platform and his email. He's personally coached over 40,000 people with this. Fortune Magazine recently named him a new guru that you should know. Now, I've known him for a long time, so he's not new to us from people that we've admired. So welcome, BJ, to the show. It's an honor to have you. Can't wait to hear what you have to share with our audience today. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me. I am delighted to have this discussion with you. And we're going to have fun. And we're going to... Uh, we're going to go there. We're going to go to the edges. And some people may be offended or upset. So I'm warning you in advance, some of your ideas may get overturned. Thank you for inviting me again, Jeff. Well, if they're used to, look, you don't know me that well. So I'll tell you that they're used to being offended oh, by me. Okay. So if they're okay. offended by you, that gets me off the hook this time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in the best of ways, yes. In the best of ways. So BJ, here's the way we start with all of our guests. We all love to know why you do what you do. And if you have to go to your mm. origin story, we love it. But I, I just, we kind of want to know the, the, the BJ behind Mr. Fogg, Dr. Fogg, yeah. we know the, the, the OG, the original BJ. What made you become this behavioral change guru that you are today? Yeah, I think it's really two things. If we really rewind, um, I just, I'm third of seven kids. I'm a middle child. So it's a complicated landscape and you have to figure out how to get along, but also get what you need in an environment like that. Maybe even more impactful on my orientation toward behavior and optimizing our lives is I was raised Mormon in California. So I was raised in a very, very devout Mormon family. And that culture, the culture of Mormonism is a lot about uh, creating great habits, optimizing your behavior, uh, controlling, like don't smoke, don't drink coffee and so on. So there's a lot of in the culture, just it's part of the, the air you breathe as a Mormon, at least in the way I grew up, was about understanding and designing your behavior. So those things, you know, are kind of just built into me. 
And then after that, fast forward, I got really interested in college and the power of language to influence and help people be happier and healthier. Even though I was a pre-med student and doing all that, because, you know, as a good son of a, an eye surgeon, of course, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Sure. Uh, I did all that. But at the same time, I was an English major and got really fascinated, not so much with literature, but with the power of language and writing. So I went that direction. I started, I found a news, helped help found a newspaper and I started writing and editing professionally to work my way through college and got really interested in rhetoric. So I went from, you know, not really literary theory, but more to the technical aspects of language and then getting into rhetoric uh, and just got obsessed with that. And then one day when I was, in France, well, not one day, one summer, living in France, reading a lot of, about rhetoric in French as part of my quest to really master it, it dawned on me one of these days, the power to influence behavior will come to technology. So it was this overlap. I was like, that's what I want to do my PhD in. I want to study the potentials and the pitfalls of creating uh, machines, essentially, if you want to put it that way, that can influence human behavior. And my thought was using it for the best of purposes, how to help people be happier and healthier and strengthen relationships and all of that. And boom, fast forward, did um, what I think is the earliest set of systematic experiments, like true experiments to show the potential and the problems. And at the time, this wasn't on people's radar. They thought my work was kind of weird and crazy and we'll never use computers for that. Um, in 2006, after writing a book on persuasive technology about here's, what, here, here's, here's what's going to happen and, here's, and I named a lot of things. So being inspired a lot by uh, Aristotle, I guess I was big on making taxonomies of here's how, and that's how I think anyway. Um, and including talking about the dangers of this in 2006, and especially now today, it's really interesting to go, to go back. And anybody can find this. Type FOG, FTC, or Federal Trade Commission, and video. That's all you have to And you'll see this video testimony. You can also find the transcript online of me saying, hey, policymakers, there's these three areas coming up, and these are going to be problems. And one of it I called persuasion profiling. You saw that with Cambridge Analytica 10 years later. Yeah. One of it was the use of video games to influence people in underhanded ways. Um, and another was, I didn't have a word for it, but now we call it deep fakes, videos that are. So I was trying to um, raise the alarm, shine the spotlight on these problems. Nobody really cared about it back then. And then in about 2010, um, the work in my lab at Stanford, we just were not interested in technology anymore. So we didn't realize this was happening, but we just shifted away from technology. In 2011, we renamed, kind of restarted the lab and called it the Behavior Design Lab with no connection to persuasive technology. It was about health habits and helping understand behavior and designing mostly habits. Um, Fast forward, that's what we're doing today is we call it behavior design and it's a new way of thinking about behavior and a new way of designing for behavior. Well, just such a fascinating, almost Forrest Gump-like behavioral lifestyle you've led, right? There's so many, so many different chapters in your life, that, but yet it's all been built around this idea of understanding how human behavior 
um, really how you exhibit, how human behavior impacts the world around us today and then how you can influence it, hopefully for positive gain, right? Unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of negative out there, but that's the- Yeah, and Jeff, let me, let me add to that. Certainly in growing up Mormon, you are, it's ingrained in you that you're here to serve other people. Right. And certainly, you know, I thought it was unique to Mormonism back then, but it's not. The, the idea where much is given, much is expected. And where service is like the, the, the number one, that's what you do with your life as you serve others. So, of course, when I thought about, you know, persuasive technologies, like how do we do this? How do we serve others through this? So it really was about providing value and benefit. Just that's just how I'm wired. That's what it comes down yeah. to. Now, if I could go in the Wayback Machine and get you to fail that student that created Instagram. <laughs> so my daughter and my son, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, that's fantastic that uh, the influence you've had on- It's become quite a different product than it was back then, you know? Well, isn't everything, right? As, as soon as it gets, you know, there's a lot of good in this world yeah. and then there's a lot of evil in this world. And many times uh, the line is very thin between the two. But so what I want to talk to you a little bit about today is because we tell our audiences and our clients, every human being if you have to speak during the day mm -hmm. to influence someone else for their benefit or yours, then you're a professional communicator. Yeah. Um, and if you make a living somehow, some way, and you're speaking to do that, if you have to communicate whatsoever, then you are a professional communicator. So in the, in the realm of being a professional communicator, the words you use, as you mentioned earlier, the words you use matter because of the way the person receiving that mm -hmm. information mm -hmm. processes it, which takes us to this concept of change. Yeah. And, ch and change resistance. So I think it was Dr. Henry Cloud that said, we change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. Now, that ties a little bit to Kahneman's work on prospect theory, right? That we twice as urgent, we make decisions at twice the urgency to avoid a loss as we do to pursue a gain. Now, in your world, when you've looked at how people change, what drives their change, how do you balance this idea behind positive reinforcement and so maybe a gain mm -hmm. message versus the yet people are, tend to stay stuck in status quo until something triggers them to move from where they are beyond where they are into something new. Sometimes a gain message of what you can gain if you change doesn't seem to move people. Yeah. And other times a risk of loss of what you will lose if you don't change does. What's your experience been yeah, let, with yeah, that? Yeah, let me take the question and broaden it a, a bit and then sure. get more uh, focused on the question itself. It was 2011 when I figured out the tiny habits method enough, goofing around with my own life that I decided to start to teach it to others. And I didn't realize this would go on for years and I would end up teaching tens of thousands of people like, 40,000 is when I stopped counting. But even from the first day that I launched, you know, I invited people to join and I thought maybe I'd have six people and 60 people signed up then went to 180 and 200 and 300 and stayed there for years. Um, even in that first little lesson, I said, hey, there are three things that cause lasting change. Number one is an epiphany. They happen, but guess what? You can't design epiphany for yourself or other people. So take that off the table, okay? You can't force that. But these other two ways you can, you can redesign your environment, which will lead to change, or, and you can take these small incremental steps, create these habits that are super tiny, and you can do that reliably. So it really comes down to, and it's this, oh, I don't want to say it's synergistic, but it's the interplay between environment change and change and 
creating these habits in small incremental ways and they work together. So that's, that, that's what we have. Now, if somebody needs to change a behavior quickly and it's a big behavior, then guess what? You have to change your environment, whether you redesign it or move to another environment. If you don't have to do something big and quickly, then incremental change is a great way to go. But as you make small incremental changes using the tiny habits method or just doing it in your own way, you will naturally change your environment. That's why they work together. So that's how I look at it. Now, when we look at, you know, what are those moments or what actually causes the change to begin? I believe that everyone aspires to improve their life. That's just built in. And if people don't take steps to do that, it's either they don't know how or more likely they've tried and tried different products and programs and they've not succeeded. And as a result of that, they blame themselves like, oh, I'm a broken person or I lack willpower or I lack motivation. And what I found in the early days of teaching Tiny Habits, and it made me very, very sad, is how many people had given up mm. on their dreams or given up on trying to change because they just felt like, well, maybe other people can do it, but I can't. And that's a big part of my work today is like, no, you can. And it wasn't your fault. You didn't change. You just didn't have the right approach yet. So once, and this is what I see week after week, ever since 2011 with Tiny Habits, and still we have this five-day program, we measure the impact week after week. Once people see that they can change, and they see evidence. It's not like me telling them. They actually put into practice. Then it just, it, um, I'd call it, well, they build success momentum. Then there's this springboard moment. I don't have another way to describe it. Where It's, it's like a gymnast running down the, the little ramp and boom, she does this big flip. Yeah. Then, they, then it takes away the fear or the inhibitions and they seem to step up and do big things. And about 20% of the people do that within five days of Tiny Habits. And pretty much everybody can wire in at least one habit fairly substantially within five days with this way. And it's just like, the, the thing that is exciting is this isn't like magic and it's not that hard. It's just, a, it's this, you're hacking three things to get there. So when I, and as an academic, having worked with everyday people and coaching them to change, I realized how discouraged people were and how much self-trash talk was going on and how much people were blaming themselves. And in some ways, tiny habits from starting about 2012, I didn't share it for that reason, but within about a year or so, I was like, this is a global intervention to help people understand that they're not flawed and it's not that they you know, lacked willpower motivation, that they, they can change. They just need to do it in a much better way than what they'd been given before. It's fascinating. And not to go, my audience knows that sometimes I go nerd out. I call it nerding out. I go nerd out on the neuroscience. Yeah. But we know now with neuroplasticity that the neurons are doing something new. They fire and then they start to wire mm -hmm. and it creates a neural pathway, right? But the neural pathway can be stuck in old ways of doing things. And But the incremental change you're talking about allows you to do that little firing and wiring simply, right? Yeah, part of it to is that. you can sneak it in. And, yeah. you know, I was... Oh, I got up at five in, at five in the morning. I was presenting to wellness leaders in Turkey, hundreds of wellness leaders in Turkey. And one of the questions was, well, what about self-sabotage? And one of the things about doing just tiny, these tiny changes and approaching it in small ways is 
you're you're not you're you're not telling yourself you're going to do this huge thing. It's like it's so simple, like floss one tooth. Well, of course I can do that, right? right. It's not run a marathon or meditate for an hour a day, which of course we don't we will feel challenged by that. And we may find ways to forget. I'm putting that in air quotes, everybody who are not watching the video, forget to meditate or do these hard behaviors because we don't want to set ourselves up for pain or failure. Right. So true. And I think so many people resist even attempting change for either to your point, a history of of what they perceive as failure or that, and that that there's a snowball effect of self-sabotage that can cause you to stay stuck. Yeah. Now, for some people listening to this, you'll totally relate that. Some people won't. And I was more in the camp of it took me coaching real, it, you know, outside. It, I didn't discover the bulk of this through academic research. It was my hands-on practice coaching hundreds of people over and over. And there was one week about six months in where a woman wrote me back and we were talking about celebration and self-reinforcement. And she wrote back and she said, oh my gosh, I now realize I've endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. Mm. And I was, I guess, grew up in not that kind of thing. And of course, I wasn't surrounded at Stanford with people that were constantly doing self-trash talk. But by interacting with everyday people um, week after week after week, I then recognized this is where most people are at. There's this this ongoing dialogue of self-criticism, self-trash talk, and that's holding them back. So it really took me getting out of sort of the Silicon Valley, Stanford, you know, the high achiever, people who have succeeded a lot to understand that this is where everyday people are at and that I could help them with this method. And I really felt like I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but, you know, fast forward, it dawned on me. BJ, this was given to you and you have a responsibility to share this. Going back to the where much is given, much is expected. And that's been a big driver of me. Like I never made any money from Tiny Habits. It was not a formal Stanford research project. I actually couldn't do research, formal research on it with my um, Stanford hat on because it quickly became a commercial venture. It quickly had commercial value. So it became this, yes, a research project but also an intervention and a very fancy hobby that I wasn't getting paid for, but would take hours and hours every week. (laughs) But it felt good because I was helping people. So I just kept going. Well, behavioral change is part of your purpose. I mean, that's just who you are, right? When you understand your purpose, it becomes, that's the path and you find that path, right? So, So let's go back a minute to, you know, my introduction to you, which was in your original behavioral change curve. Yeah. And and you discovered in your research that, you know, change happens as a factor of motivation over ability. And so, you know, some awareness or triggering event, and then you have how motivated is that person, how hard or easy is the change to take place. And I've tried to interpret that through the lens of influence. If you're trying to influence a customer or you're coaching someone to change and your employee, something like that. But conceptually, can you help underst- help the audience understand your research relative to that curve itself? Yeah. What made you come up with it? Was it was it an epiphany moment? I have mine in the shower. I call it the Eureka tank. Yeah. That's where all my epiphanies happen. Or was it a time over time you developed it? Yes, it came piece by piece. So okay. probably over the course of two years, and it finally all came together in 2007. And so I call it the fog behavior model, and you can say it in a couple of sentences, and it goes like this: Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. 
there's motivation to do the behavior, there's ability to do the behavior, and there's a prompt. And if any one of those things is missing, the behavior won't happen. And if they all come together at the same moment, it will. Now, Jeff, you've added a piece to it that is hard to say in words. I mean, there's a visual version of this that has this curve. Um, and I call it an action line. And so what that, that, and that curve looks really simple, but it's very powerful. And what it, basically what that curve shows, I'm going to break it down in three ways. Number one, the more motivation you have to do a behavior, the more likely you are to do it. So as you move up the, the XY graphic, as you move up on the motivation scale, there's more area over the curve, the more likely the behavior happened. And then looking at the ability, which is the horizontal axis, as something becomes harder to do, there's a less area above the curve. So in other words, the harder a behavior, the less likely. So that's what that, it's, it's very simple visual drawing, but it's saying both of those things at the same time. But what that um, curve also shows is that motivation and ability work like teammates. And Jeff, I'm embarrassed to say it took me like six years to find the right word of the relationship. And the word is this, compensatory. They compensate, one can compensate for the other. And so imagine you have a two-person volleyball team and one person is really weak. Well, if the other person's really strong, you can still win. Both people can be strong, but they both can't be weak. The same thing with motivation ability. To be above the action line, if motivation is low, then it has to be really easy to do. If motivation is high, then it can be easy or hard to do. Uh, So there's this, so you can look at any behavior that you do, other people do and say, okay, what was their motivation level? What was their ability level? And if they actually did the behavior, then you had at least one of those factors to be very strong, but neither one of them zero. If motivation zero, behavior doesn't happen. If ability zero, in other words, it's impossible, then of course the behavior doesn't happen. Right. So that's there's this relationship that really hasn't been studied systematically before the behavior model, but once you see it, it's all around us. Like if I'm in the airport and I can take uh, one flight of stairs, or let's say three flights of stairs, or take the escalator that goes up three flights. Well, guess what? Most people are taking the escalator. I've done counts on that. It's very, very clear. But if I'm super motivated, like I'm in a huge rush <laughs> to make my flight, then guess what? You might choose the stairs. You might choose the harder behavior because you have tons of motivation. So right. these, the way these two components work is really all around us. And you can just analyze behaviors from this perspective. I love it. In fact, unbeknownst to you, I've attributed Jeff Bezos' entire net worth mm. to your model. <laughs> You're I said, welcome, I said, Jeff. <laughs> he, I said he figured out that he has a motivated audience. If he yeah. can make buying products super easy, the velocity of behavioral change will dominate the universe. And it's kind of what he did, right? And he, yeah. he, cre- he created, a, he had a motivated person. I need fill in the blank. I need a new book. I need a new yeah. whatever. And it's on there. And he made it very easy. To, to purchase, check out, click away. And that's a purchasing example of it. You're right, it's everywhere. Yeah, and, and one thing to overcome in that example. So I, I have a model for what makes things easy and hard. And there's five links in the model. How much time, how much money, how much physical effort, how much mental effort, and does it break your existing routine? So that fifth link is mm. the least obvious. But when we talk about Amazon and buying books, 
well, it didn't require lots of time and da 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 da. But it did require you to do something in a new way, break your routine. Yeah, but right. people that were motivated enough, again, if you have high motivation, you can do things that are hard, even if it's breaking your routine. If you don't have enough motivation, you're just going to do things the same old way because changing your routine is one of the simplicity factors. It's huge. And we tell a lot of our clients in the sales side that why customers tend to resist change. That's a big one, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're grounded into their status quo of doing things the way they've always done them because as human beings, we think we make good decisions. And so you're telling me that I've been making bad decisions. So why would I, why would no. I change? Unless what I'm doing is I'm so motivated because I clearly know that what I'm doing is not working. So all of this, I, I, I told you, I have your model on my bill in bulletin board because I see it everywhere. I see it in my own personal life. I see it everywhere around us. It's brilliant. It's one of the, I think one of the simplest yet most complicatedly brilliant models that's been created in research. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. <laughs> now, as you, as you think about, and I know behavioral change and you have such a passion for that at an individual level, I love your, I love your perspective on the, the neuropsychology, if you will, the psychology piece of change resistance. Yeah. Cause I think the research shows us that all of us are oriented for self-preservation mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to get us out of the mindset of survival and self-preservation in order to be open to doing new things. What, what's been your experience or expertise around that psychology behind the resistance to change? Um, Big question. Yeah. You know, mostly, um, you know, my hands-on experience with tiny habits are people that are looking to change. So those thousands mm. and thousands of people, I know a lot a lot, a lot about how people create habits quickly and easily. But these are not people that have been assigned to do tiny habits like you might do in a laboratory setting. And they're not people that are completely discouraged. They might be discouraged, but they haven't completely given up. So the sample that I've had of thousands and thousands of people are like everyday people, but they're right. not completely given up and they're not completely stuck. Now, part of the promise of tiny habits and this approach to change is you can get unstuck. And really, after a few years, what I realized is that tiny habits, yeah, fine, you'll learn to create habits and you will create habits, but it's really about creating hope, mm -hmm. um, hope that you can change. And so a lot of my work these days in thinking, and I know it doesn't map back to traditional neuroscience, is how do you help people overcome fear and resistance by giving them evidence that creates hope. And the evidence is, oh my gosh, I am drinking more water. I am flossing my teeth or I am doing push-ups. I'm seeing I can change. And with that, it seems to affect their identity. So we measure this week after week. We haven't shown a causal link. So we're making an inference here that by succeeding and creating habits in these tiny ways, then you get these and in, in the, the research, they fill in the blank. After doing tiny habits, I now see I'm the kind of person who. So it's qualitative, but we have thousands and thousands of these statements about, I now see I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm, I'm the kind of person who can follow through and so on. So I'm really looking at it as conflicting motivations for becoming better or changing. One is they want to, there's some hope there but that's being tamped down. And it's like vectors in physics. And if you map to the behavior model, it's like a, a force going down, which is fear of failing mm. or fear of looking bad. And so by helping people succeed, even in tiny ways, it seems like that fear is reduced or eliminated 
which then lets the hope emerge, which boosts motivation, which then opens up the opportunity to make these big changes. And like I said, almost 20% of people every week make the big change. So that mechanism really interests me. And I think one way that I think about it isn't so much in um, neuroscience terms, but more like physics vectors where there's hope, which is a, a motivator, and there's fear, which is a demotivator, and they're pushing on each other. And mm. you can increase the overall level of motivation either by adding more hope or reducing fear. fear. And at least through tiny habits, you do both. But the thing that seems to lead to the breakthrough, and I say seems because I haven't run an experiment to show that this is right. the mechanism, it's by getting rid of fear. It's almost like a balloon with ballast on it. And you've got the hot air that's bringing it up, but you've got ballast that's holding it down. So if you can get rid of the ballast, you don't have to add any more hot air. The balloon will go up. That might great. be the most common sense way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And you, you, you mentioned the word identity earlier. So it sounds to me like what's happening is, is you're literally changing a person's belief because belief is mm -hmm. what ultimately drives behavior. And yeah. when, you, when, you re, when you increase hope and reduce fear, you're changing their literal belief of what they can and can't do, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, at, and, you know, at Stanford, we would certainly call that efficacy or self-efficacy, thanks to Albert yeah. Ventura being there. But yeah, and I smiled really big when you said that because um, I really preach hard against the idea of in order to change behavior, we must, first must change attitudes or beliefs and then behavioral change because you can go the other way around. Just get people to feel successful on behaviors and then their attitudes and opinions shift. It's like, it's not like the logical, and I call that the information action fallacy, like information will then change attitudes and beliefs, which will then change behavior. Don't do it that way, people. Just help people change their behavior. And then you get a lot of effects, including the perception of one's own self, the belief about their ability right. to change and so on. Yeah, there's a ton of information on um, Dan Doherty, our president here at Brain Trust, who has done a lot of research in coaching on that the positive affirmations of coaching and around the emotional intelligence and you work with all those people, that the more in positive reinforcement, the positive emotional attractors, the PEA versus yeah. the any the negative emotional attractors, you can drive people's beliefs to behaviors. But part of it is by reinforcing the behavior, teaching them the behavior, which then changes their belief about themselves. Yeah. Which I love that. I, you know, I don't think it's talked about enough. The, the question though. And Jeff, let me just build on a little more. And once you've shifted somebody's identity, and this is what we see over and over in Tiny Habits. And I like, it feels like magic, but I can't say that because I'm a scientist. <laughs> like once somebody thinks, oh yeah, I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks because she's created or he's created a habit of eating cauliflower broccoli, then that identity then has this much bigger effect. So in situations where they aren't just drawing on a habit, say they go to a reception or they show up at a restaurant, they think, oh, I'm the kind of person that eats healthy food. So you, once that shifts, then it has these ripple effects. And it's not just a single domino. I think of it like waves going out yeah. and they behave more and more consistent let me back up. And then their actions are more and more in line with that emerging identity. So even habits they haven't designed for, those behaviors can happen because now they think of themselves in a different way. Yeah. 
becomes an extension, yeah. positive behavioral extension. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a cool term. You can take that one. That's free. There we go. I'm writing that down. Positive <laughs> PBE. Exactly. Now, now you mentioned something earlier, and uh, I think we're doing okay on time. Um, you mentioned something earlier, and I, whenever I do a keynote or whenever our, our facilitators do trainings, we always ask the audience at the very beginning, hey, show of hands, how many of you like change? <laughs> and, you know, Somewhere between 20 and 40% of the audience will raise their hand. And then I'll always say, well, okay, let me ask it a different way. How many of you like change that you didn't initiate, rather someone forced upon you? And you can slowly see the hands yeah. all oh, go yeah. down. And so I'm curious now, and I know this isn't your lane of expertise of what you're passionate about, but you are dealing with people who have reached a point where they want change. They're looking for a way to improve. So they're diving into the, to the idea. What about those of us in the world who are designed or whether it's professionally or personally in helping others come to the realization that they should change. I have an answer for this because I've thought about Yes, both. Yes. Here's how to think about it. When you think somebody doesn't want to change, that's not entirely true. They may not change in the way you want them to change, but there's always something that they want to optimize. Almost always. I'm sure there's exceptions. Almost always. So what you need to do, if you really need somebody to change in a specific way and they're not interested, don't start there. Start where that person wants to start. And let me give a quick example. Let's say, let's say somebody here has a husband who drinks a lot of soda. And you're saying, hey, soda's not really good for you. And he's not interested. Don't keep nagging on the soda thing. Instead, support him in whatever area that he cares about. It might be tidiness. It might be playing the guitar or whatever. Because as that person changes in the areas where he is interested, he will learn the skills of change. He will develop confidence he can change. And those things will then generalize out to other areas. So the fear about, oh my gosh, I tried to stop soda before and I failed, that fear will be reduced. So change does lead to change. And so one of the things that I've seen over and over, and it's in my book, and it's you know, something that I teach in my boot camps is start people on the path to change where they want to start. It may, might not be right now what you want, but that's how right. you get them going. And change leads to change for those reasons. Yeah, so good. And I think regardless of, of the interaction, the conversation, I think because when people are trying to get other people to change, our brains are wired because of self-preservation mm -hmm. to think, well, I'm in, I, first of all, do I even trust this person yeah. who's asking me to change? Right. Second, if I, if I do, why are you asking me to change if I, you see, I go into, into defense mode. Mm -hmm. And I think that to your point, and we talk about this in our clients' customer conversations, if you're trying to get someone to buy a product, well, that's your agenda. Yeah. How about you get them to think about the, the talk about the, what they're trying to actually accomplish and the problems that are preventing them from accomplishing it. And ultimately you could probably then find out that they're looking to change because they want to solve yeah. a problem in a better way. So it's, it, I love your perspective there because it's shifting the conversation inside out versus outside in. Because everyone questions everyone else's motivation when someone's trying to get you to do something, <laughs> right? Well, and, and I've boiled it down to two statements and I call them maxims. So it encapsulates some of what we've talked about today. So maxim number one, and this is not for a one-time behavior, but for lasting change, help people do what they already want to do. Boom. Maxim number one, if you're thinking about yourself, revise it, help yourself do what you already want to do. Bam. 
If you don't do that, you're not going to get lasting change in others or yourself. Number two, maximum number two, help people feel successful for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. It wires in the habit, it increases motivation. If you're helping yourself, then help yourself feel successful. Those are the two keys to lasting change right there. So as you look at uh, principles of behavioral economics, as you look at techniques that are traditional techniques in behavior change and so on, I strongly encourage people to look at all of those things through the lenses of those two maxims. And let's take something like accountability partner as a technique or setting goals as a technique. Guess what? You can change without either of those. You can change, you can transform your life without ever setting a goal or having an accountability partner. But it might be useful if it helps you do what you already want to do or helps you feel successful. But sometimes setting a goal scares people. Sometimes having accountability partner doesn't help you feel successful, it helps you feel unsuccessful. So the big overriding principles are these two things. And then you can look at products and programs, and even specific techniques to say, for this person in this context, doing this new habit, are we help? is it helping that person do what they already want to do? Is it helping them feel successful? So those are the, um, those are the, if everybody, if you, if people forget everything I've said today, just remember <laughs> it for lasting change. It's about helping people do what they already want to do and helping people feel successful and, that's what any product or program should be designed to do if you want lasting change. No, I love it. And we talk a lot about the problem that most people have who are in a a role where they're trying to influence others is they are trying to be the hero of the story. And look at me, I helped you change. And you have to switch that mindset into how do I help them be the hero of the story? They're King Arthur. I get to give Excalibur maybe, but they get to be the hero, right? They get to be Luke Skywalker. They get to be Katniss, whatever the case is. And if you have that mindset, which is exactly what you're saying, who are they? Where are they trying to go? How can I help them get there? They're going to be much more receptive to your, to your influence. If you are trying to influence change and then for yourself, if you're trying to change, I love it. All right. Let's, uh, let's do this because I really want people to get their hands on everything that you have to offer. So I know you have a couple places. So tinyhabits.com is one of your sites where people can go and they can learn not just about behavioral change, but they can actually get involved. And um, is there anything about that site specifically you'd like to mention? Yeah, two things. Um, certainly you can, there's a book page there, but you know, the book Tiny Habits is the best, uh, I guess, gathering of my work, and this is not a summary of the old stuff. This is all new stuff. So I'm not summarizing the old things. It's like, here's this new thing I call behavior design. And then at Tiny Habits, you can join the free five-day program. There's no strings attached there. And you work with a real person that I've trained. And it's just wonderful because the coaches get all happy because they're helping people. The people that join, we call them habiteers. So the people that join the habiteers get help and they love that. And then there's a research component. So we're always learning as well. So that's probably the go-to place. If people want to know more about me more generally, bjfog.com. And then I do a professional boot camp, which is not tiny habits, but it's how to use my models and methods to create products and services, commercial products and services. So that could be a big healthcare provider, financial services. So tiny habits on one hand, which is a very specific method, and then the behavior design boot camp, which is like the grand training, like learn how to think about behavior and learn how to change behavior. 
So the boot camps where you get the full on no holds barred genius of BJ Fogg helping you become innovative, right? Is that as it? much as we can do in so it's it's 12 people and right now we do it on Zoom and we do it 4 hours every Friday in a month. So there's time between and it's a really great format. And then there's I hold office hours in between. But yeah, that's the and I keep it small so I get to know every person and I can customize. Yeah, that's the that's like the platinum level. It's my favorite. Don't tell Stanford this. It's my favorite teaching experience is that. That's awesome. Because I'm working with motivated, experienced professionals and then bringing them new ways of understanding behaviors and designing for behavior change. It's a blast. Love it. Love it. So bjfog.com, tinyhabits.com. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. tinyhabits.com. Get the book. Sign up for the five-day uh, starter program there. I highly encourage you to do so. Uh, BJ, it's been an honor. Like I said before, I knew this would not disappoint. <laughs> uh, you've been somebody we've admired. And I know that our clients, we've referred a lot to your websites. They've gotten a lot out of you over the years. And uh, we really just appreciate you being on the, on the podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for helping me share. Like I said earlier, I really feel it's a duty and responsibility I have to share this as effectively as I can. And so you've helped me do that. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. Have a good day. Aloha. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.